0: The world seems so unstable, so insecure. Everything is changing way too fast. But there are some things that are steadfast, things that never change. God and His Word. Join us as Pastor Randy Ream shares truths from God's unchanging Word. John chapter 10. Please stand when you're there. It is our tradition to stand for the reading of God's Word. We will read verses 11 through 21. 11 through, there was just too much meat in John 10 to take the whole chapter. Uh, so we'll, we're breaking it down in these pieces. Starting in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is the hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them, And scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become One flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. This commandment I received from my Father. And a division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of a, one demon possessed, and a demon cannot open the eyes of the blind. Can he? You may be seated. I'm going to preempt or pre-warn some of you might have your doctrine offended today. That is just fine. We feel glad to come to me and we will discuss the distinctions or differences in which I might be pointing out today. All I ask you to do is come with Scripture, not opinion. So let's begin. I am the good shepherd. Again, why why does he want to include the word good? Again, we have talked about this last week. You have to look at Ezekiel chapter 34. Remember, these uh, Pharisees that are hearing this, um, are very familiar with the Old Testament. And there, in Ezekiel 4, there's a distinction made between the good shepherd and bad shepherds. The shepherd leads, as we saw last time in reference to the sheepfold, the pen. He leads them out of the sheep pen. We know in this case, that sheep pen is Israel. That's the context. Okay. Um, we'd already, he already showed that he was the shepherd and they didn't quite get it they didn't understand um so he goes and says well wait a minute let me let me go a little deeper in this metaphor i'm also the gate okay and no one comes in and out except by him by jesus the gate we talked a little bit about the gatekeeper last time um because he says there's a gatekeeper he's the gate he's the shepherd but there's a gatekeeper um Guys that aren't the shepherd try to climb over the wall. They avoid two things, the gate and the gatekeeper. We talked about that gatekeeper being the word of God, the thing that identifies the true shepherd. If it's not, if it's not the true shepherd, he's not let in. Okay. And he says that the sheep hear his voice. So we get to this now. I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life from a sheep. He says the same thing. He repeats it in verse 15. Now, if you know anything about Jewish literature, Hebrew literature, repetition's there for a reason. And it is most of the time in all languages, um, particularly in in written stuff, all right? But that repetition's to create emphasis. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But he contrasts the good shepherd who lays down his life for sheep to the hired hand, the employee, not the owner of the sheep. When he sees a wolf coming, he leaves, okay? So this, we have the metaphor of the robbers in the first part, the sheepfold, the door, the shepherd. Now he throws in this metaphor of the hired hand. I mean, there are really hired hands that watch sheep, but he uses that as a metaphor for the kingdom. Um, the hired hand is there for a paycheck. If I could say it like that, that's pretty straightforward. In our culture, we put it that way. He's not there because of the sheep. If he was hired to watch cows, he'd watch cows. If he was hired to watch goats, he'd watch goats. Okay? It's a job, not a calling. And if you don't know the difference between calling and a purpose, you can have that conversation with me here. Many of you here have heard me teach on that before. But when it says running, so if this is metaphoric and the, and the sheep are his. Sheep are his children, the bows who believe in in particular at this point of Israel. Wolves come to scatter the sheep. Notice when the wolf comes, they don't stop being sheep. The wolf scatters the sheep. But running from that wolf is not confronting the wolf. Here's the wolf. I can confront the wolf with whatever weapon I have. Or I can run from the wolf. The wolf is someone, he doesn't feed the sheep. He feeds on the sheep or she, whichever the wolf may be. I don't want to be sexist here. It could be a male or female sheep, male or female hired hand. Okay, But the result is the sheep are scattered. That's the result of this. Now, we all recognize, I think, this metaphor well enough. All right, But I think one of the things that we must realize here is the wolf, the, the hired hand, does not confront the wolf the wolf comes he avoids the wolf why because confronting the wolf causes division if I could say it like that they think this that when the wolf comes to scatter and devour the sheep now let me question this is a metaphor right for the kingdom of God so therefore doctrine teaching theology God the study of What God does has to come into play here. The shepherd is only going to teach of the true God. He is the true God in this case. All right. The wolf's going to come. The thief and the robber is going to come, not by the gate. The wolf doesn't go to the gate and go, Excuse me, gatekeeper, could you let me in? No, he dresses like a sheep. We can find that later, later epistles that the wolf comes in sheep's clothing. Thus, the picture I was going to have for you. Of Wiley Coyote and Ralph the sheepdog, because at one time, you know, he dresses up like the sheepdog Ralph. I don't, it's amazing. Sometimes I can't remember a name, but I can remember a cartoon from 30, 40 years ago, however long ago, well, more than that now, 50 years ago. Okay. <laughs> um, and the name of the dog, I can remember that, but not your name. That's amazing. Anyway, and another time he dresses up like a sheep, but we all know that analogy that also is there in Scripture. We have to confront the wolf when he comes, whether he's disguised as a sheep, a sheepdog, or a shepherd. And I think there are too many shepherds, using that Ezekiel analogy, that will not confront the wolf, because they want their pens full, whether they're sheep or goats, you got to confront the, the hired hand flees, runs from that confrontation with the wolf. By that, the sheep are scattered. Now, now you guys know I'm using an analogy here of clergy, pastors, who don't want to confront the false doctrine that comes in to the body of Christ, into the sheepfold, if I can do it that way. In this particular case, it's Israel, but you'll see here in a minute, he includes you and I as well. They think that causes division. They think bringing up doctrinal, theological issues divides. I hate to tell you, it's the wolf that scatters. Not the gate. Not the gatekeeper and not the shepherd. If you keep the subject matter, if if you stay with the gatekeeper, the word of God, you can't go wrong. It is the Holy Spirit through the Word that draws men and women to the kingdom. Not me placating to our social beliefs, morals. Now I got books in my office that will tell you seven ways to grow a church. Fifteen ways, and I get emails all the time. And one of those ways is Programs. They, it, I could show you statistically And they have these bar graphs You know what? If you get the people in And you plug them into a program right away They stay But I'm not in the program business I'm in a sheep business If I could say it like that Do you know what I'm saying? My job is simply to be a gatekeeper That is a word guy And God's the one who calls the sheep by name He's the one that leads them in and out Not me Not a program. Excuse me, in the church we call them ministries. Yeah, I'll get in trouble for that one. But Jesus goes on to say, he's the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. But then he says, this is personal. Watch what he says. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, even as... The Father knows me, and I know the Father. It's personal, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, to know, we, we tend to think cognitive process, to know something. I'm going to be honest, God knows everything. So that ain't what he means here. And those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he, What does new mean? Many people think somehow that means God looked forward in time, learned something, and saw who would pick him, and then he predestines them. Problem is, God knows everybody. He foreknew every person. He knew the worst person ever, the most pious person ever. He knows all of them. So what does he mean, those I foreknew? Same as he does here when he says, I know the Father. Knowing meaning intimate closeness, familiarity, distinctive, personal, intimate knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And um, Joseph did not know his wife until, no, intimate, personal. We don't tend to use no in that way. But he says, I'm intimate, personal with my sheep, like I am with the Father. That's pretty personal, folks. I know my sheep. They know me. And I laid down my life for the sheep. Then he, I'll, I'll take that apart a little bit later. But he includes, this is where he includes the Gentiles now. And I have sheep not of this fold, the fold he's talking about being Israel, not of the Israel fold, but I must bring them in also. We see that. That's, you get an Acts and through Pauline epistles and Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. Those sheep that are not his fold, I must bring them and they will listen. That, that's an affirmative statement. It's in the emphatic. They will listen. Why? Because the sheep hear his voice. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock, one shepherd. Ephesians does talk about this, by the way. That great mystery of the Jew and Gentile being united in one in Christ. Then he talks about this the sheep lay down, or the shepherd lays down for his life for his sheep. He speaks this way, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Please, if you do inductive Bible study, do not leave out so that. See, too many people want to say because I lay down for my life. No, so that. There was a purpose in that. Not just laying down the life, the purpose of laying life was to pick it up again. No one has taken away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to pick it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. First of all, God loved Jesus from the foundation of the world. John 17 and 24. This is not saying that God loves the Son because of this thing He did. What Jesus is saying is, here's the evidence... That I have this knowing, the special relationship with the Father. The evidence of that is, I lay it down, present tense, so that I may take it up again, future tense. Then Jesus repeats it, no one takes, it a woman didn't, takes my life away, is what he's referring to, take it, my life, from me. Errorist tense, and I'm not going to break that down all for you, but he's using various tenses here to show the timelessness of it. Jesus voluntarily gives his life for his sheep. I've heard this in accusations against Christianity, particularly from the Islamic world. What kind of wicked and cruel godfather would kill his own son? He didn't. His son voluntarily gave his life. The father did not kill the son. He voluntarily went and died. The Jews, nor the Romans, killed. Matter of fact, Jesus gets into this conversation with Pilate. Don't you know I have the, pilot, I have the authority to set you free? And Jesus goes, oh, you don't got any authority unless my daddy gave it to you anyway. So what are you talking about? Death is the consequence of sin. Therefore, Jesus could not die or be killed. He had to lay down his life because he had no sin. Thus, in Acts 2, 24, it says it was impossible, impossible, impossible for death to hold him. Because death's authority is founded on sin. Christ had no sin. Death could not keep him. Death could not take him. He had to lay it down. He had to lay down that life. And he says again, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. You you want to prove that I know the Father and the Father knows me. I I claim this special thing that they want to stone him for They like they've done before. They'll do it here later. Okay, this special, yeah, watch. Now what's interesting here is Jesus is pretty straight. This isn't a metaphor. He says, I will lay down my life and I'll take it up again. Nobody hears that. That's amazing to me. Uh, they, they hear all kinds they don 't recognize he is saying i 'm going to die. Uh, I think it 's pretty clear and he says, "This commandment I received from the Father, really when This is called the eternal covenant of redemption slain since the foundation of the world type of statement, okay from ephesians one four through nine three through nine through eleven second thessalonians two thirteen 2 Timothy 1.9, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 3, and so on. Before the earth was ever created, before there was a universe, the Father and Son sat down and made a plan. And Jesus volunteered then. The Father sent the Son. The Son never sent the Father. We, we don't say the Father died on the cross, do we? That's patriopatronism, if you want to know. We, we don't do that. There are distinct. Functions, roles in the Trinity that manifest in redemption. That's called the Eternal Covenant. That's when this commandment, if you could say, is given. It is Jesus' voluntary obedience that leads to Philippians chapter two, six through eleven. His voluntary obedience, not forced obedience, voluntary obedience. Philippians two, six through. 11. It's one of my life verses. Verse 5 tells us it's Jesus Christ who is being talked about here. So Jesus Christ, who being very nature God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, For this reason, God highly exalted Him name and bestowed upon Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is that voluntary obedience to be our substitutionary atonement. And God says, because of your voluntary obedience, everything will bow to you, to my glory. This causes division, really. Start talking substitutionary atonement. Jesus' voluntary substitutionary atonement. That is, He took the wrath of God in our place. What are you saved from? God. That's what you're saved from. The wrath of God. Romans 5. Well, 3, 4, 5. Jesus took the very wrath of God on our behalf. That'll stir up a crowd, I'll tell you. Even on a Sunday morning in churches across America. A division occurred again, again, it says again, you notice it says, because it already told us this in John in a couple places. Uh, when Jesus speaks, it, it, it stirs up division. By the nature of the gospel, it stirs, creates division. If you're looking to share the gospel without division, you've got to make up a new one. Again, divert, or excuse me. a division occurred again among Jews because of his words. They were doing all fight. They do okay until Jesus speaks. I would suggest to you that will, well, cause, the word of Christ will still cause division. Yeah, I'll do it today. Watch. Many of them were saying he has a demon and is insane. Now, you've got to understand, in those days, they, they equated insanity, mental disorder, with demon possession now we all know today that there are mental disorders that are caused by physiological issues all right but there is a association in those days if you had a mental issue you obviously have a demon not necessarily it could be but we all know today that's not the case but in their culture they associated that so it's not necessarily they're saying two separate things they're they sort of saying the same thing in their culture Why do you listen to him? Let me me put it in the way the first guy said it. Did he really say? Did he really say that he's going to lay down his life and take it up again? Did he really say he knows the father like this? Did he really say he knows his sheep like this? Why do you listen to the crazy guy? Others were saying, "Mm, these aren't the saying of a demon-possessed. A demon can't open the eyes of the blind, can he? Jesus' words and actions are not those of an insane person. Now, You've probably heard this argument from Josh McDowell or somebody else if you've been around in Christianity for a while, and particularly in apologetics. That is defending the Christian faith against criticisms and arguments of other worldviews that you only have two options. Jesus was either who he said he was or he was insane. Come on, he claimed to be God. He claimed to come down from heaven. He claimed to forgive sins, right? So his claim, he's either nutsoid or he's right. These guys taking this path, it's nuts. That's what it's got to be because he can't be right to their view. Others going, wait, wait a minute, before I before I make that assumption... I look at the whole guy here, and I don't, I don't see that. But it does connect this uh, parocopy, the section, with the previous section when Jesus healed the man that was born blind. One of the significant parts of that was nobody has ever been healed. It says in the text, and there's nowhere in the Old Testament where anybody ever who was born blind could see. There might, there might have been times when somebody that had an ailment that caused their eyesight to fail but but then they're healed they they grove over it the disease goes away whatever but when you can't see from the get-go yeah i don't know about that one only god has that power to create now i want to we broke the text down a little bit there but now i got to go to the theology yeah i said theology i use that word And theology includes all kinds of things uh, in the area of maybe it might be salvation. That's called soteriology. Eschatology is the end time stuff. Okay. Christology is who Christ is. Theology proper is when we talk about God himself. So theology encompasses a lot of that. But I think here we have to address the area of soteriology. To do that, allow me. To define a term for you, you've heard many times in the church world that is atonement. In the Old Testament, that word's used of that cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, with the, you've seen it, we've all seen readers of the Lost Ark, right? With the cherubims, with their wings going like this. That top plate that set over the ark, underneath it was the law. Okay, over it was suspended that pillar of cloud by day and fire by night representing the presence of God, this was called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And that's where they would, on the the day of atonement, they would sacrifice that lamb, sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. So as metaphorically, allegorically, as God in the presence here is the fire and the smoke, looked down at the law, he looked through the blood of the lamb. Now I don't think I have to explain the symbolism or the typology to you for that. Okay? But when we get to the New Testament and look in particular at the Greek, which I won't burden you too much with, but there's two concepts put there. That's expiation and propitiation. You go, huh? I know. They're, they're Bible words. Okay? But expiation is to appease, to placate, to conciliate, to satisfy. In particular, to placate, to satisfy, right? The wrath of God's justice. Propitiation is to make favorable, to be well well disposed on the behalf of another. So atonement is this. On the behalf of another, the anger and wrath of God is appeased, placated by the sacrifice of the Lamb. The wrath of God is appeased by the sacrifice of the Lamb. The atonement has made, was made to satisfy the justice of God through the substitutionary atonement, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to listen again now. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. He says it again. In verse fourteen, fifteen, when he's talking about his intimate relationship with the Father, and he knows the sheep, I lay down my life for the sheep. According to Jesus' words, for who did he atone for? The sheep. This is Stephen Wilson, and we want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope you were blessed by today's message. Truths from God's Unchanging Word is an outreach ministry of Kindred Bible Church in Caldwell, Idaho. If you would like to listen to other messages by Pastor Randy or learn more about Kindred Bible Church, visit kindredbible.org. Our prayer for you is that you grow closer to Christ as we study the truths from God's unchanging word.